Uh, we'll continue on our worship with scripture reading. And I want to warn you, uh, there's going to be three jumps and a bunch of names. I am starting to suspect that Pastor Stephen tries to find passages with the most difficult names. So we're going to start by the power of the Holy Spirit in Ezra 6, 13 to 15. We'll jump to Ezra 7, 1 through 6, and then we'll carry through to Nehemiah 1, 1 through 3. So please rise for the reading of God's Word. We'll begin in Ezariah 6, 13. Ezra, sorry, Ezra 6, 13. Now this is the word of the Lord. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatinai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bonzenai and their associates did with all diligence that Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. We're in chapter 7, verse 1. Now, after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zodak, son of Aitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerhiah, son of Uzi, son of Bukai, son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Bab- Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he had asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Nehemiah 1, 1 through 3. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakali. Now it happened in the month of Sheslev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there is the province who had survived. The exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, For the past few weeks, uh, we've been hearing uh, the Lord's call to return and rebuild His temple. Now, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us to rebuild the temple in light of Jesus being its fulfillment and in light of our present context? 
Well, two things we've talked about. First, to rebuild the temple means reestablishing the rhythms of grace in our lives. And it begins with worship. Remember Genesis 1? God creates the world in six days, but on the seventh day, He rests. And when He rests, He calls all creation to Him before His throne, and all the world gathers before Him and bows down and worships Him. Why does He do this? Why didn't God just create the world in seven days, or why didn't He make a week six days? Why didn't He make us all into these superhumans, producing output constantly, needing no rest? Why did God give us a day of rest and worship? Well, it's so that we would not forget the reason and the purpose of our existence. So for six days, we work the ground, but on the seventh day, we lift our eyes upward and we remember the one who created us and the one who redeemed us. One and six, one and six, one and six. This is the rhythm of grace that God has given to us. And as we hear this call to return and rebuild, we are once again hearing the call to now recenter our lives or realign our lives and our week around this one day. The day of resurrection, the day when we are reminded of who we are in Christ the day when we gather and worship with our eternal family week in and week out, we are doing once a week what we believe we will do forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Through this act of laying down our work, our pleasure, our leisure, our entertainment, we are declaring to the world that Jesus is King. So rebuilding the temple means reestablishing the rhythms of grace, one and six, one and six, one and six, getting back into that rhythm. I'm sure there's some music theory out there that supports this idea, right, that the one sets the tone and the mood for the six, one, six, one, six, one, six. That's the rhythm we're trying to get back into. The second way in which we're called to rebuild God's temple is through the act of reconnecting with one another, or in other words, rebuilding community. If we are all many temples through Jesus, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, then our task is to rebuild one another. You know, the social effects of the pandemic have been well documented. In addition to the deaths that we've experienced, spiritual health, mental health, emotional health, all severely decayed. Some studies show recently that one out of three Americans suffer with depression. One out of three. That means for every third person we count, he or she is dealing with depression. Anxiety, extremely, uh, very similar numbers. Spiritually, we've uh, all suffered the consequences of isolation. You know, the pandemic revealed not just how weak and unjust society is, as we've seen throughout the past two years, but the pandemic also revealed how weak we are as individuals. And often I found myself during that time singing the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, hoping that I could just make it to the third stanza, where it reads, Let thy goodness like a feather bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. 
Friends, the people of God were never meant to be in isolation. This journey of faith was never meant for us to do it alone. You need others and others need you. And we are looking to rebuild community. You know, if you've been around the church long enough, uh, you'll know that Ezra and Nehemiah is often preached when the church is engaged in a building campaign, in a building project. Now, while that certainly has its merits, I think the more important rebuilding project that we face at this time is the community, the project of rebuilding one another, the ruins that we find in one another, the ruins of worship that has occurred in our lives. And this is how we define this call to return and rebuild. It's by reestablishing the rhythms of grace and reconnecting with one another. Now today, as we look at Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, a bit more, I want to spend some time looking at the diverse people and the different methods that God used to rebuild his temple. Now, if you were to go to a Christian bookstore today, I know there aren't many left, but if you were to go and pick up a popular Christian book on Nehemiah, you'll notice that out there in the church world, there's this huge emphasis on Nehemiah's leadership and his character traits. For example, uh, this is an article uh, from the Journal of Applied Christian Leadership from the University of St. Andrews. Now, the, the article is titled, What Made Nehemiah an Effective Leader? Now, there are studies like this all, all around, and they go into depth on Nehemiah and his character traits, his attributes, And they draw out a lot from who Nehemiah is or was, and they talk about how Nehemiah was a visionary. Uh, it, It emphasizes and it draws out how Nehemiah was someone who knew how to leverage power. He was someone who knew how to broker power and also leverage it in a way that was beneficial to him. These studies go in onto how Nehemiah was a man who was always so prepared. He was meticulous. He planned everything to the T, was detail-oriented. Most importantly, they say he was a man of prayer. He prayed all the time. It speaks on how Nehemiah was a man of foresight, and he had perseverance, grit. In addition to this article, there's so many other books, Life Lessons from Ezra Nehemiah, Max Lucado. From Courage or Courage to Face Opposition, also another book on Nehemiah. Practical Study on Perseverance, again, on Nehemiah. And studies like these emphasize over and over again the leadership traits in Nehemiah in hopes that the readers, that Christians, would read this and then emulate them and so become like Nehemiah. Again, there is some merit to this. I'm not saying it's wrong entirely, but I think there are a lot of pitfalls to this approach. Today, I know it sounds like I'm going against the grain a lot, but I think we need to, if we take a closer look or reading of Ezra and Nehemiah, we'll find that maybe this is not the best approach to take. So, there are a lot of things we can learn from Nehemiah, but I think we have to be careful Because if we take this approach, there's going to be some disappointment because some of us aren't meticulous people. We can try to be detail-oriented, but we can't be. 
But more importantly, I think there'll be delusion thinking that if we just become like Nehemiah, then we'll be able to do some great things, that God will be able to use us. Well, if we read the text more carefully, we'll see that God used Nehemiah to do amazing things, not because of who Nehemiah was, uh, but because who God was. Look with me at Nehemiah 2. This is uh, uh, Nehemiah's um, story. He is a cupbearer, meaning he has proximity to power. He's close to the king. He's always talking to the king, right? And this is what the king asks. If we look at Nehemiah 2, he says this. um, What are you requesting? So I pray to the God of heaven. Okay, so Nehemiah, immediately when the king asks, what are you you thinking about? What are you you asking for? Nehemiah, in between that conversation, in, in dialogue, he starts praying. Okay, so Nehemiah is a man of prayer, right? And then this is what Nehemiah says, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, okay, so he's a man who knows how to show deference, right? He's leveraging power. That, and this is what he asks, send me to Judah that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. In other words, he had everything planned. He had a timeline. He had a response. And then I said, if we look to the next slide, um, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass. What is he asking for? He's asking for security. He has to make a dangerous journey, and so he needs a letter certifying that he, has, that he is being sent by the king. And he also requests a letter from Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. What he's doing, he's name-dropping here. And what does he ask for? He asks that timber may be given to me to make beams for the gates of the, for- of the fortress of the temple and for the walls of the city and for the house that I should occupy. You see what Nehemiah is doing here? He's leveraging his power and he's taking or he's using everything that he can to go up, to show up to Jerusalem prepared. He doesn't show up with nothing, right? We, we all know that one fellow, when he shows up to a certain event or an outing, shows up empty-handed, just shows up with his hands in his pockets like, hey, guys, I'm here. Well, that's not Nehemiah. He shows up prepared. He comes with timber, and not just timber for the temple and the city, but even his own home, right? He doesn't want to be a burden to other people. He is a self-sufficient guy. He's well, well prepared. And so what happens? Nehemiah 2, 4-9, the king granted me what I, what I asked for the, goods, uh, for the good hand of my Lord was upon uh, me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So the king sends an army, an entire convoy with Nehemiah and his people, and he shows up to Jerusalem. Think about like the site where Nehemiah and all these people with horses and men and all this timber, he shows up. Right? What's the saying, right? Squad deep, right? He shows up squad deep, and people must be like, wow, wow, look at Nehemiah. And some of you might be enamored by him, might be thinking, wow, what a leader, what preparedness. But if you look at Ezra's story, similar situation, same time. Look with me at Ezra 7 and 9. Okay, Ezra is not a cupbearer. He's a scribe. He's a teacher. And it says this, 
uh, and I, Artaxerxes, this is the king speaking, make a decree to all the treasurers, whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law, uh, the law of the God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. If you look here in Ezra, it's the same situation. Ezra is leading a bunch of people back to Jerusalem, but Ezra doesn't ask for anything. But the king, the same king, Artaxerxes, he starts to initiate, and he sends Ezra with all these resources. He says, listen, let Ezra ask you for everything and give him everything. And then along the journey in Ezra 8, this is what it reads. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and our good. Do you remember, the diff- do you remember with Nehemiah? He goes with a letter. He goes with horses and armed men. But with Ezra's story, he actually p- proclaims a fast because he's seeking protection for the journey. And we find out why. If we look, the next verse, it says this, For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. See, Ezra doesn't ask for an army. He doesn't ask for protection because he's embarrassed. Why? Because he told the king God is going to help us. And so instead of asking the king for protection, he tells the Israelites on the journey, let's fast and ask God to be with us. Now here's a question for all of us here. Who are you more like? Are you more like Nehemiah or are you more like Ezra? If you were traveling, who would you like to travel with? You like to travel with Nehemiah or you like to travel with Ezra? You know, those enamored by Nehemiah might be thinking, Ezra, why are you so unprepared? Why are you putting people in danger? You know, if you were part of Ezra's group and you had to fast, every time you felt hunger, you probably would have cursed Ezra. What a fool! All you had to do was ask. But there are others here in this room that would feel more akin to Ezra's style who's quiet, modest, extremely sparing with his words. Some would object to protection from a foreign king. Why? Because if God had called us back, he will protect us. And they would have appreciated the fasting and the seeking for God's protection. We find a very similar situation also in Ezra 9. There are issues that arise because the people engage in interracial marriage with the neighboring nations. Now, for context, intermarriage isn't a bad thing for ethnic reasons, but it is for ethical reasons in the Old Testament. Intermarriage back then meant the acceptance of other people's gods. And so we find here in Ezra 9, as the people are engaging in this sin, Ezra 9, 2 and 3 says this, For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race had mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And this is Ezra speaking. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garments and my cloak, and I pulled my hair from my head and beard, and I sat appalled. 
When Ezra sees the sins of the people, what does he do? He is broken. He pulls out his hair and he tears his clothes and he just sits there appalled. Same situation. Look at Nehemiah 13. This is what it says. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And I confronted them and I cursed them and I beat some of them and I pulled out their hair. Nehemiah 13, 23, and 25. We find Ezra, one pulls out his own hair, and the other, Nehemiah, he pulls out other people's hairs. If you, if you see, if you read on the story, you'll see that Ezra, when he sees the sin, he starts to pray, and other people are in anguish, and they start to pray with him. There's, there's weeping, and, and people are gathering before him, and they start praying. Ezra doesn't say a word to his people. Instead, the people propose a plan, and Ezra just endorses it. Ezra doesn't offer this top-down confrontational rebuke. Instead, he takes ownership of the sin, and he's broken by it. Nehemiah, on the other hand, he starts making people take oaths. He's like, promise you'll never do this again. And when he sees people that are violating the Sabbath, he forces the city to close its gates And he goes around flogging people. He's confronting people, asking, why is this being neglected? Why is this being neglected? Nehemiah is an action-driven, quick to think on his feet, not afraid of confrontation. Nehemiah is a zealous man. You know, if I were to ask you again, what would you have done? Are you more like Nehemiah or are you more like Ezra? See, the point of drawing out this contrast between these two individuals is not to lift one up at the expense of the other, but it's to show you two people with completely different personalities, completely different leadership styles, both being used by God in the same rebuilding project during the same time. So you have on one hand Ezra, a quiet teacher, a scribe. He's unassuming. At one point in Ezra chapter 7, he writes, I took courage, meaning Ezra was fearful of the task at hand. But Nehemiah, he's quick to think on his feet. He's assertive. He's confident. He's not afraid of confrontation. Now, some people during this time might have wondered, why the disunity? Well, there's no communication among the leadership. While one person is pulling out his own hair, you have another guy running around pulling out other people's hairs. What's going on? It's a complete mess. Well, some people here might say, you know, we need both. We need contrasting figures. But as I read it, I'd like to think that the reason why we find these diverse people, personalities, engaged in the project of rebuilding It's not because we need two contrasting personalities, but it's because it shows who God is. A sovereign God who is all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing. In other words, God is never restricted by the players on his team. See, he's not like LeBron James, ouch, who needs a team. He's not bound to certain methods or molds in that if you don't fit a certain personality or if you don't have a certain set of gifts, you cannot play a role in his story. If you don't have a certain trait, you don't fit in his system. 
We've all wondered that before, haven't we? Do I fit in this company? Do I fit in this community? Do I fit on this team? Do I fit in this system? But as we find, as we read the story of redemption throughout the Bible, God is not bound to people's personalities or methods or gifting. He will do what He has set out for His people. You know, if you look throughout the Bible, there is no one personality trait that everyone has. There is no one gift that everyone has. There is no one method that everyone follows. God uses diverse people, diverse situations, diverse methods to prove that the power lies not in people or methods, but the power lies in God. You know, I know I spent a lot of time on Ezra and Nehemiah But the reason why I'm doing this is to go against the grain in some sense with with the studies out there that emphasizes we need to be like Ezra, we need to be like Nehemiah. I mean, if you look throughout, even during this time, there are two prophets, as we read, Haggai and Zechariah. Two prophets, very, very different. Haggai's message, if you remember from last week, is essentially, come on, come on, guys, let's stop the BSing. Or in the words of our president, right, let's cut the malarkey. Haggai is a guy who's saying, hey, no more nonsense, no more nonsense. Are you in or are you out? He's calling for action. Zechariah, the other prophet on the other hand, he gives this grand vision of God's temple, and he seeks to inspire and to give hope. He focuses on social justice, caring for the widows, orphans, and foreigners. Again, two different approaches, and both were effective because God can stir up hope through a call for action, and he can stir up action through a visionary message. Again, the point that needs to be stressed today is this. God is not limited to the strengths of man or bound by the weaknesses of humanity. In other words, it doesn't matter your history, your gifting, your strengths, or the season that you are in. There is no perfect person or perfect timing to serve the Lord, to be engaged in His rebuilding work. Because our God, He's an amazing God. He uses all sorts of people, all sorts of situations. He can make something out of nothing. And our Savior, He's a perfect Savior. We are called and qualified to be in, in His service, not because of our abilities, but because of His saving grace. You know, our perfect Nehemiah, our perfect Ezra, our perfect Haggai, our perfect Zechariah is found in Jesus. I mean, consider Jesus. He is the perfect paradox. A man who on one occasion was filled with so much zeal that he ran into the temple and he started flipping tables. He makes a whip and he runs the merchants out. A 30-year-old carpenter just makes a whip, and he just cleans the entire temple, and no one dared to stop him because he had this fire in his eyes. He was filled with so much anger, yet on another occasion, he was so gentle and kind that little children would just naturally run towards him. Jesus was a man who called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. He called out the hypocrisy for all that it was. Yet he approached and loved the woman caught in adultery. 
and he freed her from judgment. Jesus was one who taught with so much authority, yet it says a bruised reed he would not break. Jesus was one who wept at the thought of being separated from his father, yet when he stood before a powerful governor, he stood there confidently saying, you have no authority over me. And most of all, Jesus, who went quietly to the cross like a lamb, not opening his mouth, three days later, he rises victoriously from the grave defeating sin and death. Jesus is both our suffering servant and our conquering champion. See, God's method to save us is in itself a paradox. The God-man dies the death of sinners so that sinners can live the life of God's resurrected Son. See, friends, this is why in some sense it really doesn't matter what your gifting is, what your personality is like, what your background is like, what your history is like, whether you're confrontational, whether you're reserved, whether you're loud, whether you're quiet, whether you're white-collar or blue-collar, whether you're careful or venturesome. It doesn't matter what you're like because the cross all qualifies us for His service, because at the end of the day, our confession is we are the same. Whether you're like Ezra, whether you're like Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, it doesn't matter. We are all the same. We are sinners redeemed by grace, and we serve an amazing God who can take you and I, people unfit and unqualified, and make us qualified by the cross. And so, There are just two takeaways that I I have as we wind this message down. The purpose of this message is to encourage all of us to engage in the work of rebuilding. See, the task of rebuilding the community, the task of reestablishing the rhythms of grace is not just a task for the few, but it's a task for everyone here. You might say, well, you know, I'm just, I'm a timid person. I'm too different from the people here. If you're concerned whether or not you fit the mold, just look around you. I mean, I I try to display it as much as possible. Having people, different, uh, different types of people in leadership. I mean, we have two pastors here, completely different. Our praise leaders, completely different. Our elders, three men who are just completely different. Our deacons and the members, everyone who is in service are all different with different quirks, different personalities, different styles. But friends, in the church, diversity doesn't take away from effectiveness. Rather, diversity is a witness to God's power. You know, the church lasted for 2,000 years and there isn't a single method that we reproduced over and over again outside of worship, outside of preaching. There's no one type of leader. There's no one type of servant. There's no one type of Christian. In the church, diversity doesn't take away from effectiveness, but it shows God's power to save all those who come to him. You know, when we take a look at the way in which all sorts of people are engaged in Nehemiah, Ezra, when we think of Zerubbabel and Joshua 
Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, all of these different people engaged in the same project. Their hands are on the same work, yet so different. We shouldn't think, wow, look at these amazing people. But instead, we should think, wow, what an amazing God who can use all of these different people and all of these different methods, who can take this, 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 this seemingly this unity and make it into something beautiful. So the challenge for us is this. If you ever think, well, you know what? Like, I'm not qualified or I'm not called. I'm not able to get involved. You know, the church is very different. I don't fit in. You know, I'm too confrontational. I'm too quiet. Friends, the point of Nehemiah and Ezra is to show that God uses all sorts of different people. Just listen to the prayers that are prayed from this place every week, the different prayers. Listen to the the ways in which people give their announcements, just the different ways in which people serve. We're all called to a service, and God qualifies all. The second takeaway that I want to end with is this. Because people are different, because people are different, everyone is different, we are going to find it at times difficult to be around people who are unlike us. If you're like Nehemiah, you will be frustrated with Ezra's. And if you're like Ezra, Nehemiah's will really rub you the wrong way. You know, I titled today's message, Difficult People, Diverse Methods. Because when we are around people that are sometimes different from us, often we find them to be difficult. If the church is founded on the fact that God saves His people, regardless of their personalities, regardless of their backgrounds, that He uses His people for His service, regardless of their gifting, then you will be around different people. And different people will sometimes be difficult. But friends, the diversity of people, the diversity of personalities is once again just a witness to God's power that He can take seemingly parts that don't look like they fit and bring it together to build His church. And so the takeaway for for you all is this. If you're sitting there thinking, you know, now is not the perfect season for me. Now is not the right time. I'm not in the right moment. I'm not qualified. I'm not called. I don't have the right gifting. I don't have the right personality. I don't think I'll fit with this person or that person. I want to remind you this morning that the God who calls you is the one who qualifies you. He calls you to his service, and we ought not be tentative thinking, ah, you know what, I don't know if I can really make a difference because God is an amazing God. He can take all of this and make nothing or make something out of nothing. So church, everyone gathered here, the community, would you put your hand to the work of the Lord in rebuilding? Would you engage your hearts, your minds, and your efforts in this work of rebuilding? 
Would you lay down whatever differences you think you may have? And would, would you put your hand to the wheel and serve his people and his church? Would you join me in prayer at this time? If we could just take a few minutes just to respond in prayer. You know, there are a lot of things that we can learn from Nehemiah, Ezra, and this rebuilding project. But the truth is, we can't be like Ezra. We can't be like Nehemiah. You are who you are, how God has created you. But the, the purpose of this message is not so that we ought to try to become like these people, but it's once again to inspire you that whoever you are, the Lord has redeemed, and He calls you to His service. And so, you don't have to worry or be concerned about fitting in. The Lord uses all sorts of people, diverse methods to do amazing things because our God is an amazing God. Christ himself, our salvation, the great paradox shows that he can take the cross, a form of capital punishment, and turn it into salvation, salvation for all those who believe. Would we take a few minutes just responding? Ask the Lord how he has called you to his service. Ask the Lord to whom shall he send you to and in what way will he call you to be a part of the rebuilding project. Let's, let's spend a few minutes just responding in prayer at this time.